0: welcome to our podcast. This is Unit 4 from Amador Valley High School, um, Comp Civics. And today we're going to be talking about the strongest, in our opinion, the strongest branch of government, and that is the president. So I think the first place we need to start is Article 2 in the Constitution, because that's where all the power is derived from constitutionally. So I'll open up the floor to any of my unit members. Let's discuss Article 2.
1: So, I mean, um, I think, yeah, Article 2 is actually the shortest Um, of the articles in the constitution. And that's how you kind of got an executive where you could go from um, the era of John Adams where you had like the Congress and the president like having strong and fierce debates about whether or not to enter into conflict with uh, the French. And now you get today where the president can pretty much unilaterally bomb people. So, like, hashtag Obama, hashtag Biden, hashtag Trump, hashtag Bush, hashtag, hashtag Obama Clinton, and Libya, H.W. Bush, hashtag literally every president since Truman.
2: OK, we're off topic.
1: Um, yeah. To, to but, add on
2: to Mark's point. Yeah. Uh, essentially, one of the things that was interesting about Article two was essentially they 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 wanted it to be able to give it be able to re- react to a lot of crisis. They essentially saw it. So, under uh, Hamilton, uh, in Federalist Number 70, which is outlined sort of this energetic executive. So, in the energetic executive, essentially, it outlines how there should be these competent powers for the executive so they can respond to crisis and emergency. Because the founders, obviously, they gave the power to declare declare war to Congress because they wanted this deliberative nature. However, like, when, when you're in war, you can't have you know, 100 members of Congress voting on some whether or not to send troops to this position. We need a commander chief who can act sort of uh, re- act on his own accord to essentially address threats. So we kind of see how the executive has taken sort of its ability to respond to crisis, uh, which is conflated by how Article two doesn't really have a lot of these powers like Article one has, which essentially gives a lot of power in general to the executive branch.
3: Yeah. So within the article, too, um, a lot of the wording itself is just vague, and that's why the president has a lot of potential to be able to expand beyond what powers are given to the president in the Constitution, which isn't really many outlined powers. And that's why they have so much potential to grow. And that's why we've seen throughout the years the presidential power has expanded beyond um, what it was at the beginning. So like uh, a couple of the clauses within the Constitution that are the vagus are um, the uh, article ones or article two, section one, clause one, which is like the very first part of article two. And in that clause, um, the Constitution talks about executive power and how what, what the power that is given to the executive branch is simply executive power, which hasn't actually been defined ever. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So,
1: yeah, to expand on that, you see like, um, sorry, Grace, but... Uh... Article one, um, you have the same vesting clause that you see in article two, where they say um, the, the legislative powers are vested in the Congress. Um, but after that, after that, you get a long list of things that they can't do. You get, oh, Congress can't do article this. Article
2: Congress- one, section eight, section eight of Article one.
1: Article yeah. one, section eight. I don't like think it's Article
0: no, section nine, but OK.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so Sorry, anyway, Yeah. So there are a lot of strict limitations placed on what Congress can do. And there are a lot of strict guidelines on what Congress cannot do. No such text exists in Article two. If you want to pull it up right now, you can. And it basically just says what the president is. It does not say the president cannot do this. The president can't ignore a treaty that says you can't torture people. And lo and behold, you have presidents who basically ignored treaties and decided to um, torture people. So, um, and that was basically under the Unitary Executive Theory. Um, and if any of my inmates want to expand on that idea, which is based on Article 2.
0: Yeah, we see in Article, in addition, I think there's one special part of Article 2 where we definitely see the growth of presidential power from such a vague Article 2. So specifically, I'm thinking about the Take Care Clause and Article 2, Section 3, Clause oh, yeah. 1 basically just says something along the lines is the president can take care that all the laws are faithfully executed. That's pretty vague. It doesn't really necessarily mean anything, to be honest. But what has this clause or what powers have been derived from this clause? We see the most common being the executive order. So the president basically has power to enact certain things with that are kind of legislative. Um, for example, um, President Biden did an executive order to undo or to re-enter us back into the Paris Climate Accords. And that's very much like legislative power, but he was able to do that through the executive order. So it all came from the take care clause, which was pretty vague, but it's given the president a lot of power.
2: So to add on to Greg's point, sorry, Mark, I know you want to talk about the unitary executive theory, but I think it's important to touch on executive orders and like sort of their their role in sort of these checks and balances, which we all know were crucial sort of what with- how the founders wanted to set up government because they wanted sort of these each of these entities the three branches of government to check each other so like executive orders like it's pretty much like legislating right like the, uh Pred obama in 2000 i don't remember the 2012 yeah i think it's 2012. so after congress pretty much failed to pass meaningful immigration reform the dream act they they failed to pass it because of republican stalemate in the senate president obama's like I right, here's daca which technically is questionable. The Supreme Court upheld its constitutionality. But essentially, the executive has been able to just ignore Congress because he used the executive orders, which stem from Article two and how it's really vague. So executive orders kind of and in general, just the vagueness of Article two have sort of messed up the balance of checks and balances. I would personally argue I don't know how my unimates feel about that position in general.
0: I think, you know, it comes with this balance, like the president can have arbitrary power with the executive order and kind of do things when Congress can't get anything done. And that can be seen as a bad thing because the president's acting so quickly with kind of approval from nobody. But it can also be helpful because when we need something really desperately and Congress can't get it done, as we see with, you know, partisanship and that divide, our president can do it for us with an executive order. we Now, this example isn't the best, but it's the one I can think of. Um, it took Congress a really long time to pass a stimulus check. And unfortunately, the president, both uh, President Trump and President Biden, weren't able to pass it through an executive order because constitutionally, I don't think that works. But if he were able to, um, either of them, we could have gotten aid much faster um, with the executive order.
3: Also, executive orders are sort of a way for presidents to kind of like, I guess, check themselves Um, when a new administration comes in. Executive orders can be a good way for a president to like quickly create the conditions that they need to push through the rest of their policy agenda. So like um, with President Biden, we saw on his first day, I think he it was like 17 executive orders um, that came out of his first day in office. And a lot of those were undoing things that the previous administration, President Trump, had done in his in his uh, couple of years in office. So yeah, um, one of the things was like rejoining the World Health Organization and just um, yeah, it's basically a way for presidents to kind of check their previous administration.
2: I would definitely argue because like it's sort of like the it, they reflect sort of like why the people elected these this new president, right? because a lot of people were unhappy with the Trump presidency and a lot of these these previous moves by the administration so then president biden comes in and he rescinds these with the executive order so it's sort of yeah so it's definitely like a check sorry mark i
1: interrupted you what were you gonna say Nah. um it's all good i forgive you matt um (laughs) from the bottom of my heart i mean yeah just to expand on this whole idea of executive orders and like a lot of their power does come from like their ability to enforce legislation that's really what they are they're like basically a president saying like Oh, I'm going to enforce legislation in this way and this is how we're going to do it. But I mean, a lot of that power also comes from the administrative agencies, right? Because those orders can also direct an agency to take a certain action in order to enforce certain policy. So for those of you who might not know, the executive branch isn't just the president just sitting in the White House. It's hundreds of executive agencies that are all across the country um, basically um, enforcing legislation like um, the fda the um the EPA, CDC, big one. the epa um the president has a lot of power over these administrative agencies that have big control that have big um have a lot of power have a lot over of overreach they have a lot of overreach right and they don't have a lot of checks from congress that are actually like you know applied um frequently a lot of congress usually just kind of like could you imagine if Congress actually tried, like, they're already on as it is, could you imagine how hard it would be for them to actually do anything if they had to deal with regulations that all of these administrative agencies do? Like, so Congress usually passes the reins off to these people and that gives the executive power a lot more, like, and more power ability. because they can
2: influence. Yeah, that on they like influence legislation or not even legislation. Just we saw with the EPA during the Trump administration essentially because technically an independent agency, but the Constitution sets it up. So the executive appoints these officials, which are then uh, confirmed with the Senate. And through these officials, essentially, the president is able to enact his own policy. And we saw the rollback of environmental protections through um, one of the EPA with Scott Pruitt. So, There's a lot of issues with the executive having sort of the ability to influence these so-called independent agencies through his own sort of uh, handpicked officials. I think that's one. I think the administrative agencies like are one of the main a big concern in terms of executive power because not only do they control so many different areas of government, but they're also directly tied to the president. If you think about it, he can pick pretty much whoever he wants, and in this partisan environment, if you hold the Senate. And the president so you're gonna get your um, you're gonna get your appointments through
3: yeah and not only that but like the impact that these laws and regulations can have on our nation are kind of huge so like some of these laws and regulations can cost um over a hundred million dollars to just enact and like implement across the nation and without having any sort of strong check from congress like we you can see why that could get pretty dangerous pretty quick and um, i think that's Uh, a huge reason why presidential powers expanded so much. So uh, something that I bring up pretty much every testimony just or every Q&A is just because I think it's like, it's pretty important for Congress to be able to check these regulations, especially since they are laws that have such a big impact, um, is this thing called the RAINS Act. And basically what this stands for is the Regulations for the Executive in Need of Scrutiny Act. Um, And this is already in place in Wisconsin. So on a state level, it's already in place and working. And uh, I think that having some sort of congressional oversight, which is what the Reigns act would do, especially over laws that are super significant, like financially, uh, would be a good way for Congress to be able to check the executive branch and also the president, you know, inherently.
0: So I so. think there's one important court case that we need to go through in terms of agencies. Um, ESA has a great way to fix agencies. Um, But in terms of, or we see that relation between Congress and the president, but in terms of how do agencies work with the Supreme Court? What is that relationship? Because we are unit four. We're all about the relationships between the three branches. So there was back in the day, there was a court case. It's called Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council in 1984. And what happened was it was concerning um, the EPA, I believe, and a bubble regulation, which is kind of regarding like particles in the atmosphere. So I believe Um, What happened was the EPA interpreted it a different way and um, someone ended up reaching the Supreme Court and Supreme Court basically said, um, if the legislation that was created to um, lead this agency, the legislation that guides the agency, if it's really vague, then it's up to the agency to determine how to interpret it. They get the jurisdiction to determine what they do with it and Supreme Court can't really interfere with that. So that's kind of allowed the, administrative agencies to have quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial power because they get that power to interpret um, uh, legislation that gets passed on to them. That is super vague. And most of the time, legislation is pretty vague because congressional members don't know everything about the environment. They don't know everything about education. They don't know everything um, about like the economy. So when they pass it off to these agencies, they get that ability to interpret. Do you yeah. want to switch up yeah. the topics?
1: I mean, I'd say they don't know much of anything about all the other stuff they actually do, but. No. Uh,
0: okay, so
2: I feel like we talked about the of agencies. Let's go back. I would say let's go backwards into history. We've kind of talked a lot about modern day presidency a bit, we, you know, executive orders. Uh, let's talk about, yes, war, Isha. That is, we should definitely talk about war in the executive because I would definitely argue that we see the expansion of the executive grow the most during war. I mean, uh, one of the first examples that comes to mind is a court case ex party Merryman, which occurred during the Civil War. So essentially, during the Civil War, um, President Lincoln, because at the time there was so there was this the Civil War was a, a very impactful conflict in which there was a lot of uh, violence going on, and essentially President Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Basically, this is a power actually enumerated to Congress, not the executive branch. you guys remember? I don't remember. What is the clause again?
0: I think it's Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2.
2: Um. So essentially, this is this is enumerated to Congress. However, because the executive or pre, uh, President Lincoln was like, Congress isn't in session. This, we're in the middle of a war. We need swift action in order to essentially preserve the Union. So he essentially goes out and suspends the writ of habeas corpus. So, after this, uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney rules, this is unconstitutional. I think a, a major thing, like, so it was unconstitutional, and then Lincoln's like, okay, I'm still gonna do it. So, we see also, like, the power dynamic between the Supreme Court and the executive. The Supreme Court needs the executive to enforce its rulings. And the executive isn't gonna just essentially on to the judicial power, especially in times of war, which I think is important here. So I think the main thing to take away from ex-party Merriman is how during times of war, the executive really has sort of this leeway to essentially do a lot of constitutionally dubious actions that are oftentimes necessary just because war is such a serious issue and I think this continues throughout history. I don't know if somebody else wants to add in or bring up another sort of situation.
0: I think that's definitely an idea we see a lot even in philosophy too. Um, If we turn to Locke in chapter 14 of Prerogative, he says that during times of crisis, especially like war, the executive should have more power and even um, take power from the legislative just because the executive can act unilaterally and act by pretty much by himself because they are the only person within that branch. So when war comes around or an emergency comes around and we need those swift decisions to be made right away, it's much easier for the executive. And that kind of goes back to the unitary executive theory that Mark was talking about earlier.
3: Yeah, but I guess the main issue is how, like, how far can the president, you know, take it within war powers? And like, we've seen that since um, the president, Congress hasn't actually declared war since World War Two. And since then, we've engaged in a whole bunch of conflicts, right? So it's like, all of these are being initiated, you know, by the executive branch, uh, pretty much. So um, there's been a lot of like, attempts by Congress to try and rein in the president in terms of the war acts and we've seen this with the War Powers Resolution Act of 1973, uh, but uh, if someone wants to talk about why this actually hasn't worked, uh, we can see that, you know, the president's powers within war has largely remained like unrestrained.
1: We're actually kind of in a I unique think- situation today um, where we're actually seeing some Democratic senators saying like, um, like talking about maybe reigning in war powers, maybe um, mm-hmm. repealing the um, The AUMF that was passed in 2002 that basically gave the president unilateral authority to act in the middle east um so i mean this is something that really hasn't happened a whole lot in the last 20 years which is really surprising considering everything that's happened especially with foreign policy um we saw our favorite president George w bush take war powers to a level like even before his time that was like completely unprecedented um he basically asserted and we were just talking about the interior executive theory earlier that he had unilateral authority over foreign policy, pretty much, and that Congress attempting to obstruct that authority was actually an obstruction on his authority as the president. And um, I guess the one example of legislation I can point to is this act in 2005 that basically said, the president cannot torture people. They cannot torture anyone, whether or not they're uh, soldiers or enemy combatants, as the Bush administration like to call them. and. They said no torture. And then Bush said, OK, I'll sign this act. But then afterwards, he wrote a signing statement attached it to the legislation. And he said, I will not enforce this if it impedes on my constitutional authority as the president to secure to ensure national security. So he basically said, um, if I'm if, it, if it's needed to protect the nation, I am going to um, I'm going to just do it so um, This kind of attitude that kind of just ignores Congress and just gives all this power to the president to act in foreign policy has just given made a president that even the founding fathers, like Alexander Hamilton, who envisioned this big, powerful presidency, even they probably would have hesitated at the amount of power that the president wields today, especially in war.
2: So I think we have to go back to the War Powers Resolution because we kind of just glazed over it. It's a pretty important um, thing within the purview of the executive. So the War Powers Resolution of 1973 was passed after the Vietnam War, where essentially the public, it was the conflict. They were like, so, OK, during the Vietnam War, Congress didn't actually declare war against Vietnam. So essentially the executive just by being able to control the armed forces, their troop deployments and such, is able to carry out the Vietnam War without Congress and essentially without sort of the consent of the people, essentially. So Congress passed the War Powers Resolution Act of 1973, which essentially states that in terms of conflict, that when the executive sends troops abroad, he has to report it to Congress. So one of the main things about the War Powers Resolution in terms of the reporting, or so let me clarify. So he has to report to Congress within 48 hours that he is sending troops to this location. And then if he doesn't gain approval from Congress, then they have to be rescinded after, is it 30 or 60 days? I think it's 30 days. 30. 30.
1: I've heard everything, but they are really rusty. Who cares? They don't don't listen to that.
2: (laughs) So essentially, one of the main things that is interesting, it actually gave the president more power, which is kind of. Kind of ironic, just because it's meant to check the executive, because Congress. This one word, hostilities, they have to report. These reporting and sort of these, we're uh, sending back these troops, has to be can only be done if the president is sending troops into hostilities, and that's a vague word, and the executive benefits a lot from vague wording. So I'll give an example. So in two thousand Libya, two thousand two thousand and eleven. President Obama was like, okay, Libya, you know what? I don't like you, Libya. I'm sending troops to Libya. I'm sending airstrikes to Libya. That
1: was his exact but I'm not reasoning.
2: Gonna re- <laughs> that was his exact reasoning. He was like, I'm not going to report it because it's not hostilities. I'm not sending anybody into hostilities. President Obama airstriked or bombed a hundred targets and said he wasn't in hostilities. So you can kind of see how there's sort of this issue with the wording of hostilities within the War Powers Resolution. So I think a lot of things today is, how do we fix that? And how do we sort of like do anything about it?
3: Yeah, so one of the ways that, you know, we've discovered, uh, well, not what we've discovered, but we've um, agreed with a law professor who created this is uh, Yale you know, Law Professor Una Hathaway. Um, so basically she created uh, an idea of how to fix the War Powers Resolution Act by defining the word hostility and making it way more specific than what it is now. Because as Matt said, you know, the word hostilities is so vague that presidents are able to bypass that word and then not be subject to any of the regulations within the War Palace Power's Resolution Act, which just makes the whole thing, you know, not working. Uh, not, yeah, makes it not work. So um, basically, one way that we could fix this, uh, as Una Hathaway says, is to define the word hostilities and make it more specific it Could be like armed conflict or, you know, like, war you know more specific yeah
1: uh, and- well i mean i i totally agree with you but i mean i guess um the main point we can kind of get from all this is that there are a lot of things you could do you could change words you can make things more specific to limit executive power but the end at the end of the day the executive the executive branch is really like um they're really um they're really creative and trying to expand their power um, the executive branch is always going to be like that because you have one one person at the head of it, and they're it is in their self interest to expand their power in order to take more unilateral action. So, I mean, this is something that we're going to keep on seeing throughout American history. Um, it's something that we have seen for um, all of American history that the executive is just going to keep expanding its power upon this vague um, article. So. Congress is going to have, and the people are going to continue have to continue to demand that executive power is checked if they believe that that's in their interest. Otherwise, um, I only see executive. Yeah, <laughs> I personally. I'm a cynic. It. I only see executive power expanding more into the future. Um, but I mean, if any of my unit mates are optimists, like
3: episode two, we oh, f-
0: we're all cynical. You'll have to find out next time. Thank you guys for joining us today. That was our first episode of this podcast regarding the expansion of presidential power and this is the a really executive. really spicy executive
1: yes executive it's brand. really oh my god man.
0: really spicy branch um, we did a lot of research over this branch over the past year in cop Civic. so thank you guys so much for listening um, to um, again... <laughs> no it's not or monetized um, but thank you guys Thank you guys so much for listening. This, once again, has been Unit 4 from Eleanor Valley High School Comp Civics. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Goodbye.
2: Adios, amigos.